0: Welcome to the Philia Podcasts. We are the daughters of those women who came before us. It is our absolute honour to have met so many incredible women fighting for the liberation of us all. Our role at Philia is to amplify the voices of those women via the Filia Conference and these podcasts. Please take from them what you can. In sisterhood and in solidarity, the Philia team.
1: Hello and welcome to the Philia Podcast. I'm Alice. Um, And today I'm talking to Sam Smethers, who is the CEO of the Fawcett Society. And we are going to be talking about the coronavirus and its impact on women. Hi, Sam. Hi. Thank you for having me. So for anyone who hasn't heard of the Fawcett Society, it's probably one of the biggest charities in the UK that fight for women's equality. Um, And they've done some incredible work on women's political representation and the gender pay gap. Um, and Sam is the CEO. And prior to that, she worked for many years at the Equality and Human Rights Commission. So how is lockdown going for you? Well, uh, I think
0: in week six, I have to say, it's starting to get to me. I think I've been coping pretty well uh, until now. But this week I felt um, a bit fatigued with Zoom meetings. I've got to be honest. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and then I discovered that that was a bit of a thing because so there's a, a sort of uh, scientific basis for why we're all feeling very exhausted um, for for having too many Zoom meetings. Um, so it, it's quite common uh, that people are all saying the same thing. They're finding it quite draining. Um, so it, it just reassured me that I wasn't alone, really, that that was kind of normal. And just staring at a screen and talking to multiple People at once on a screen is apparently not great for you in terms of your own well-being. So um, trying to look after yourself. And also I've got two kids at home who are uh, being homeschooled as well. So that's the juggle I'm doing domestically. But apart from that, um, we're keeping everything going. And I think the campaigning work we're doing is really important. And um, it's really kind of keeping me focused on what matters. And also those who are in a much more difficult
1: position, certainly than I am. Mm, definitely. So... Speaking of the campaigning work that you're doing, the Fawcett Society has organised a joint call for women's visibility in the coronavirus response. How did that come about?
0: Well, it seemed really clear to us, actually, from the beginning of this crisis, that women were absent from decision making, absent from our screens in terms of you know, the line up at the daily press conference at Downing Street that we were seeing. Um, And that really the messages coming from government, the decisions that were being made by government were being made with no real consideration of the impact on women's lives at all. You know, the fact that the lockdown was introduced without any reference to women who were in abusive relationships and what the impact on them might be. No lifeline thrown to them, no thought to how we were going to safeguard them in that situation. when almost certainly, and we've seen already in the data, that it would make their lives more uh, more difficult would put them at risk and guarantee that more women would die as a result of it. So I, I think that was the, the thing that really kind of galvanised us. And then the only way really forward in this crisis is that we work together. So, you know, the women's sector has got some wonderful organisations in it, but many are small organisations, many are really vulnerable you know, the, the risk of losing funding, for example, we could see a number of those organisations go under if they're not supported. So we really have to unite across the UK, across the nations of the UK um, and build what is essentially, you know, a movement of organisations and individuals to try and both make women visible now in the crisis, but also to get government and other decision makers and policymakers to think about the impact on women's lives as we start to make decisions about ending the lockdown. As we start to uh, plan for how Britain emerges from this crisis, because the ramifications of this crisis could be really quite profound. And the big risk is it will have a a significant negative impact on women and girls for many years to come.
1: Mm. So what are some of the things that you're doing? Because I know you're you're doing a wonderful um, webinar series at the moment um, with with women from lots of different organisations giving their expertise. What's going on behind the scenes that we're not seeing?
0: Well, uh, yes, the, the webinar series has been a great um, way to get everyone involved in the conversation. And um, I think, you know, we're going to be running that for the foreseeable future, really. I think um, we've got some great ones coming up, which I'll tell you about in a minute. Um, but behind the scenes, we've been um, putting survey data out in the field. So we're just getting that uh, back now. Um, and it's us and the Women's Budget Group and LSE and Queen Mary as well. A couple of academics we're working with. Um, and that's really looking at the impact on women's lives. Um, we've got a sort of representative data sample, but with particular focus on um, low income women, BME women and parents as well, um, because we know it's hitting low-income households hardest. It's certainly hitting um, parents of young children very hard, single parents very hard. Um, we've got booster samples, which means we can you know, also talk about the impact potentially on disabled women as well. So we're really trying to, through this research, trying to surface Um, what's actually happening to particular groups of women who we suspect and we know are are most at risk. Um, And in addition to that, we've got a diary series running. So we're collecting diary evidence at the moment from 75 women who are keeping um, weekly diaries for us. Um, we haven't published any of that yet we're just starting to analyze the data but it's incredibly powerful stuff um, and very very moving actually quite distressing to read Um, and you can just really see the struggle that people are going through it's so difficult for them so um, we'll be gradually over the next few weeks releasing that data as well so it's a bit of qualitative data and quantitative data Um, and then we're trying to get more funding so um, we're bidding for funding at the moment to try to do more research and really carry this program through over the next year to two years really so this isn't just about this immediate crisis it is absolutely about what happens short-term medium-term and longer-term for women and girls because and um, it's it really is something that's going to have you know, long lasting impact. So we have to follow that. We have to track that over time. Um, and there are a number of questions we can keep coming back to in terms of survey data to see what's changed over a period of time. So um, that's basically the plan so far. But it's an evolving plan, if I can put it like that.
1: <laughs> it sounds like it's already a massive plan. I should just say, before we all get inevitably trolled on this, um, that women are less likely to die directly from COVID-19. That's what the data is suggesting at the moment. Men are sadly more likely to die um, from coronavirus. But women are more likely than men to be impacted in in other serious ways, as we've just been talking about. So I think now, if it's OK, if we can focus in on a few different areas where the difference between the impact on men and the impact on women is particularly noticeable. Um, and you talked about some of these in your initial call your your letter to um to the government um so the first one is care work um in terms of people who are paid but also women who are doing unpaid care work why are women more likely to be impacted in this area well um I think just just before I come
0: to that question, can I just pick up on your difference between women and men and the sex disaggregated data? Because I just think it is really a very, very important issue, this. And and I want to re-emphasise the point because we are seeing, it played out in real time, the significance of sex differences in terms of the impact of this virus. So the call for sex disaggregated data The the reason why we have to think about the differences between women and men in terms of sex-based differences, in terms of design of PPE and whether it fit, they fit women properly and fit women's bodies, all of these issues, uh, we're literally living through it and seeing it now. So it really demonstrates the most, in the most powerful possible way that we need sex disaggregated data. Um, And we absolutely need data disaggregated by ethnicity and disability and so on as well. So it's, you know, we can see BAME workers are much more at risk at the moment as well, you know, disproportionately dying on the front line, Um, you know, incredible, in incredible numbers, actually, terrifying numbers. Um, And I think that is the reason why, you know, those of us who talk about equality impact assessments, uh, it sounds like a sort of policy wonk type thing to talk about, but it's actually vital. It's actually how we solve this crisis. It's how we address and meet the needs of people who are both more likely to be ill or more likely to die. So, Let's not have any more debate about whether or not we need equality impact assessments or disaggregated data. Let's just get on and do that as a matter of course from now on, because we can't afford to, to leave that unaddressed. Um, and on the point about care and the impact of care, it's, it's really interesting this because... You can see, and again, it's sort of coming through the data. I haven't got the numbers to hand because it literally, it's only just coming hot off the press, but we'll be releasing it in um, sort of the early part of May. Mm -hmm. But you can see um, that uh, we know already that women are already more likely to take uh, responsibility for unpaid care work in the home, disproportionately caring for children. We know that. men have been doing more care though over the last sort of 20 30 years if you look back over the, you know, from the 70s until now you know dads definitely do spend more time caring for the children and want to spend more time caring for their children all the survey data suggests that too so that's why we've always supported calls for improved leave entitlements for fathers as well because if we equalize that sharing of care early in a child's life in that first year, they're much more likely to play an active role later in life, which is good for mothers, good for women. Um, but through this crisis, what you can see is that um, with both parents at home, and you've got households with both parents at home, it still seems to be falling disproportionately on mums to take on the care of those children. They're doing their pay job, and they are uh, spending more time caring for children. Dads might think they're doing more, and maybe they are doing a bit more, but it certainly doesn't look like it's being equally shared. Um, and I think that sort of whose job is the, the serious job and whose job is the one that can be kind of just fitted around the kids you know that is polarizing and men are the ones who are basically saying well you know I've got the proper job I've got lot of myself away in the office upstairs you know you can you can go and uh, sit downstairs and juggle yours with the kids Um and sometimes these aren't deliberate decisions even we just kind of default to it because that's the sort of gender norm we've kind of evolved either in our households and our society you know that's that's what's happening, but it's putting huge, huge pressure on women who are doing that unpaid care work. Um, And then if you think about the impact on single parents in particular as well, you know, huge, huge challenges for them trying to juggle paid work and caring for children. Um, and we can also see through resolution foundation data that parents of young children are more likely to be in doing frontline jobs. So they're actually more likely to be in a place where they're at risk of catching this virus themselves. Um, as well as being ones, you know, often in low paid work. Um, and single parents are doing, you know, huge amount of best to care for children, but really struggling with that balance without having that informal childcare, perhaps to rely on or have lost nursery places where nurseries have closed as well as schools um can't even get to the shops some of them because they can't get out of the house with the children they might have vulnerable children they're caring for um you know so really some difficult challenging circumstances and people really struggling with low incomes and job insecurity as well at the moment so it's mental well-being and it's financial uh, security are really major
1: issues i saw a really awful story about a woman in Scotland who was shamed in a supermarket for taking her children shopping with her and when she made the point that well I'm a single mum and I can't really leave my kids at home because they're too young no one really seemed to have actually thought that might even be a possibility. Yeah
0: what can she do you know I mean single parents always, you know, of of all mothers are always blamed for what happens to their children, but single parents always get sort of a double judgment in society. You know, sometimes this sort of idea that it's a lifestyle choice being a single parent, you know, it's sort of it's just a hangover from the 80s of this sort of damning of single parenthood. Um and yeah the idea that she shouldn't take her children with her to go shopping uh is uh it, it shows just how ready we are to make those sorts of judgments and we, we want to judge her. And that's the sort of underlying misogyny in our society, really, that sort of plays itself out. in when we're looking to blame someone, it's the single mother who's, who's most likely to get the blame for making the wrong decision, because she's also made the wrong decision to become a single parent in the first place. Um, so, yeah, it's really, really unfair and really, really challenging. And again, you know, women are, are not visible. We're trying to make women visible, but there are some particular groups of women who are even less visible. So and, and single parents, I think, are, are one of 92 percent of single parents are women.
1: So moving on to another group who in your letter you you wanted to draw particular attention to, um, and that's women who are victims of domestic violence or abuse. Um, And I think that there are some new statistics out which suggest that domestic abuse killings have actually doubled during lockdown. Um, So why is this happening and what help is the government providing for women at the moment? Yeah, I think it's
0: actually more than doubled now. Um, Well, why it's happening is because... um, They've put women in a very, very difficult place. They've told them to stay at home with someone who is abusing them, you know, threatening their safety and not giving them a route out. So um, we called at the beginning I and mean, we supported all the domestic abuse charities to say they needed to create a safe place for women to go. So it isn't just about a helpline. It's also about actually physically where can they go. So hotels, for example, were offering to provide accommodation. South of Black Sisters were leading that campaign. Women's Aid as well. Um, They said, right, we'll we'll create a place for women to go. Hotels can't be used at the moment for any other purpose. That was at least a short-term safety mechanism. um, And government were asked to fund that. They still have not funded that. Um, Mm. We've got the Domestic Abuse Bill going through Parliament at the moment. It's just had its second reading. I know... Many politicians are lobbying hard on this as well. But as yet, we still have not seen significant resources ring fence for the Vogue sector. Um, it's just really, really worrying and just simply not good enough. That should have been a priority at the beginning. And if we took a gender lens at the beginning of this crisis and actually put women and girls front and centre of the strategy that was actually going to be rolled out, we would have made very different decisions. And that would have been a priority from day one because it was absolutely predictable that that was going to happen. All the experts said that. And it's it's exactly what we've seen play out. And there will almost certainly be an increased demand for services when we get to the end of the lockdown. So once women can get away from home, there probably will be a surge in, in cases and a surge in demand. And will the sector be able to cope with it? Absolutely not, unless they get some more money. So government has to prioritise that and see it as another emergency service because it's about saving women's lives and saving children's lives as well so
1: I know that the government did allocate a a few more million pounds at some point in the last few weeks to domestic abuse I feel like if you don't if you don't really know what the situation is that sounds great that they're giving more money to it but someone made the point that actually this is this is really just a gesture because what's happened is that since well probably 2010 Domestic abuse services have been systemically underfunded. So by giving them, I don't know what it was, two million, four million um, in the last couple of weeks, actually just a drop in the ocean.
0: It was just it was just a bit of funding towards helpline support. It wasn't actually, you know, funding the rest of the service provision at Mm -hmm. all um yeah and you're right and and also some of the specialist um providers have been unable to get contracts you know you've got some bigger players who can get the contracts and provide some of the sort of support that's provided at local level you know when, when local authorities are tendering for example and sometimes specialist uh domestic abuse charities aren't able to bid for those funds and get that funding so that's another concern i think in terms of the sort of structural fabric of what we're losing in terms of the the sector um but i you know i think There are many, many organisations and individuals now all calling for the same thing. I know the End Violence Against Women Coalition have lobbied really hard on this as well. So I'm really hopeful that that will eventually turn into some funding. But my concern is it's a bit too late, really, and it should have been a priority early on. Um, And the Treasury, I think, you know, it looks from the outside, at least, as if the Treasury is sort of dragging its feet a bit on this. Um, Because I think there are other voices within government who are also lobbying to get more money for domestic abuse uh, organisations but who haven't at the moment um, been successful so that needs to turn into action needs to be pushed up the treasury agenda and they need to be given that funding and that announcement needs to be made as soon as possible.
1: And so I just wanted to touch on one other group of people um, who are women in unstable jobs and women working on the front line um, in places like supermarkets um, and other shops. Um, so in the call to action you say these women are usually the lowest paid or in insecure work. And of course, this means that these workers also have the fewest resources to cope with a situation like this.
0: Absolutely. And so um, remember, there is we've got a sort of legacy effect here for, for people in this situation as well. So in 2008, we had the big kind of financial crisis. We then had a period of austerity after that. So a lot of the lowest paid, the most vulnerable workers, you know, black and minority ethnic women, Uh, you know people who are really vulnerable they already took a hit in that period so they've already had 10 years of challenge and difficulty when it comes to finances and and survival really so they're not in any kind of position they've got no resources they've got no um no sort of cushion to fall back on in terms of financial cushion or even in terms of support friends family around them in some cases so they are in a really challenging place. They haven't got money to last them beyond the end of the month. You know, they can't get through to the end. They don't know where the next kind of um meal or or, or income is coming from. So how are they supposed to cope with being the ones who are also most at risk now? And what are we going to do as a society, as a government? What what, what decisions are we going to make that actually recognises that and, and creates a different future for those workers? Um So right now, they're at risk on the front line because they're physically more at risk of catching the virus, because they're there out doing key worker jobs and absolutely supermarkets, you know, refuge collectors, cleaners, you know, cleaners in our hospitals are really fundamental to how we tackle this virus. Do they get PPE? Are they treated as part of the NHS? Most of them are contracted out. Some might get PPE, most of them probably won't. Will they be prioritised, even visible in any of this? So all of the those lowest paid jobs have been identified as being also where people are most at risk. Um, and yeah, precarious work means precarious lives. So, and if you're living a precarious life, then actually that also undermines your ability to contribute to the economy as a taxpayer or, um, as the consumer, right? So we're actually undermining our whole economy by keeping people in those very low paid, precarious jobs. If we could lift the lowest paid and if we could improve their terms and conditions, then actually our whole society would benefit, you know, a more equal society. Would be a more productive one for everybody and that's the kind of direction forward that we want to try and achieve you know we can choose at the end of this crisis to go forward in a um in a progressive way or to go forward in a way which actually just is a race to the bottom and says well we can't afford to do anything else we're going to pay we're going to pay the lowest wages we're going to deregulate our economy we're going to remove protections of part-time workers that's the choice we're facing, and, you know, and also let's not forget we're playing this out in the context of Brexit, you know, coming over the hill as well, which is another uh, source of anxiety in terms of uh, where we might be in uh, economically and in terms of workers' rights. So I think we have to really push as a, as, as a, as a third sector alliance, but actually beyond the third sector with business voices, trade union voices and so on to really set out a vision and the criteria for what kind of future we want um, and the
1: choices we expect
0: our government to make
1: which brings me on to my next question, which is, what is missing? Why are the government's measures falling short for women at the moment in so many different ways? Well, in the immediate crisis,
0: the the first thing that was missing was no plan for domestic abuse uh, survivors in the lockdown. So, Absolutely. That was a glaring emission. Secondly, the furloughing scheme, although it's very generous and to, be, to the government's credit, it is it is a good scheme in terms of uh, what's on offer. Um, it doesn't really respond to the reality of women's life. So it's come through our um, coronavirus conversations events on the chat function. Uh, both times, actually, where people have been saying, why can't we have part time furloughing? Why can't? Uh, we just do one or two days a week of work and then be for the rest of the week. And actually, as an employer, I'd be really happy to implement the scheme that offered that. But we, we haven't got that flexibility because it's this very inflexible scheme that's been created. And I think that lack of thought about what would work for women 's lives is is, is is actually shows it doesn 't really work for everyone anyway, so if we get it right for women we 'll get it right for everybody because other people want flexibility too it isn 't only about what women want so um I think that 's been another omission I think also the the way pregnant women and um both in terms of the health advice they've received but also their uh, employment rights and the way that 's been communicated I think they 've been really poorly served actually they um should have been told at the beginning. That they were a group at risk and, and told to take extra care. And that didn't happen until quite late on into the crisis. Um, and then we've had real confusion about women workers on the front line. So if you're a pregnant woman working as a nurse or as a care worker, what rights do you have? Have you got the right to say you don't want to work in that environment? Um, and actually you do. If you don't, if it's not a safe environment, you do have the right to say that, but that hasn't been communicated clearly. Um, and we've had no focus really on how we give women clear guidance as to what they can and can't expect from their employer so Mm. organizations like maternity action and pregnant and screwed and others have been really campaigning hard on this and we've been supporting them but at each step they've had to fight to get the government to clarify what it means for pregnant women and again why didn't we think about them at the beginning you know there were lots of pregnant women in our society and in the workforce it's not a surprise Um, but somehow that was an afterthought and all of these things would have been addressed if we'd taken a gendered approach from the beginning. I think, actually, the the other uh, group that we ought to be talking about as well is is Black and Asian minority ethnic workers on the front line who have now been told, you know, with new guidance that actually maybe they should be removed from the front line because it's not safe for them. And, um, and you know, to have that six weeks into a crisis um, in an NHS, which frankly couldn't exist and survive without its BAME workers, it's just extraordinary. And I think if, if government had actually protected our, all our care staff, social care staff as well, at the beginning with decent PPE supplies, with testing and tracing at the beginning, then we would not be in this position. We wouldn't have lost all those lives. And I think it's going to become really apparent actually when we start to examine the decision making in this crisis that those early decisions have been glaringly wrong and you know government is going to have to face some quite hard realities about what it did and didn't do in the first few weeks.
1: When that inquiry comes about Mm. yeah so usually and you know more about this than I do but usually when policies like these are implemented they're implemented after months of careful consideration, research, lots of civil servants kind of doing the due diligence on them. Do you think that some of these gaps have appeared because actually the people who have been making these decisions have been a very small group of people at the top of government who have been making them very quickly? Or do you think that there is a kind of more um insidious structural discrimination that's going on here?
0: I think the absence of women from senior decision making in this crisis has definitely been a problem and a concern. And we've been Uh, talking about that since the beginning. Um, You know, the the thing about pandemic responses is it's supposed to be a plan that kind of already exists. So, you know, the government has a risk register, a pandemic is kind of top of the risk register, we're told. Um, And, you know, I think the simple response to that then is if it's top of your risk register, you have to then prioritise what your mitigations are to deal with that and you know, the plan you have to roll it out. Um, So I think some of the problems that we're seeing now with the rolling out of that plan and the decision making actually go back probably years in terms of how that plan was resourced how it was supported the extent to which government was planning for this at all you know in 2018 and 2015 you know we've got to look further back to really understand why the decision making has been so poor um i think now uh, what we haven't got and we still haven't got transparency actually about who the sage advisors are you know this is sort of government experts we don't we don't know who they are you know they haven't published the list um there's there's a few educated guesses going on as to who's involved but we, we're not seeing diversity decision making that's clear and actually we're also when you look around the world and see how other countries are, are dealing with this crisis many of them led by women you see very different decision making you see very different approaches you know The kind of strict testing and tracing from the beginning, a really strict lockdown at the beginning, to try and minimise the pressure on the health services and minimise the number of deaths. And that seems to be working in other countries. Now, we're not at the end of this yet. We don't know where we're going to end up with a second wave. And it could be be 12 months a year, another year before we can really look back and have any assessment of which strategy really worked. But it's quite clear that you can get very different decision-making in response to this crisis. And I think the lack of diversity of decision-makers in this government um you know no women in the treasury you know no uh, senior sort of crisis uh, response decision makers for who were women at all i think that shows that we've got um a potentially at least a bit of group thing going on and that ultimately doesn't lead to good decision making
1: how do you think the structures of government or the makeup of government would have to change in order for this not to happen in the future? I mean, hopefully, let's just say, hopefully we never ever encounter another situation like this. But say we do, what do we need in order to be able to do this differently and do it better next time? Well, the reason governments have to plan for pandemics is actually they do happen. You know, so, you know,
0: yeah. it's not that they're that rare, you know, SARS and, and Ebola aren't that long ago, actually. I know they didn't touch us, but they they happened in, in other countries. Um, and so I think, in terms of what how we do it differently well we would say absolutely you need equal representation and You need diversity of representation and decision making um you need a uh, real kind of transparency from the beginning and i think we haven't actually had that in this case either um and uh i think you know we need good accountability um i, th- I think that will come but at, at the moment i don't think we're getting enough scrutiny of of those decisions either i don't think Parliament's able to function perhaps as effectively as it might have done Mm. um i think that you know the pm hasn't been as visible and as accountable um i know he was ill but i think there is a there is a genuine concern about the extent to which he is really uh, being held accountable at the moment so i think we do need to address those issues of transparency and accountability as well as representation going forward
1: Mm -hmm. and on the issue of of representation i kind of when you say there's there's very few women who are actually in decision making positions um during this time. So on the, the the group of people that that give the press conferences every day, you have um Dr. Jenny Harries, who is the deputy scientific advisor, um, and then Pretty Patel, who sort of mysteriously reappeared after a while after everyone was saying, Where are the women? Um is there in your sense Has there been any progress in diversifying the group of people who are making the decisions? Do you think that if we continue to ask after a couple of months, the government will say, do you know what? Yes, you're right. Let's have a patient representative and let's have someone who is a working mum um, and let's hear from them. I think um, I don't think I don't think they will
0: make those changes no i don't um because i don't think they see the point i think that as far as they're concerned they're in the middle of a crisis they just want to crack on and deal with it and all this talk about diversifying who is who is representing government or making decisions they think is all a bit extra frankly and they don't think there's a is a priority because they're not connecting the two about the quality of the decision making and who's making the decisions um i think uh we you know we just don't know really because there's not enough transparency around the advisors and decision makers and I think that's another issue if we were really clear about who the sage advisors were if we were really clear about who's at which uh, decision making table at any one time then I think that would help but I think that's another area where they could be more open
1: mm, yeah wishful thinking so my last question um is kind of a million dollar question I guess Something that a lot of people are saying at the moment, um, which you've already made reference to, is that COVID-19 is showing us who the real essential workers are. And they're not the investment bankers or the CEOs who are earning hundreds of thousands a year or millions of pounds in bonuses. They are the people who are like, usually in middle to low paid jobs and often with considerable job insecurity. And as we know, those people are also disproportionately likely to be women. So, when we rebuild an in inverted commas after COVID-19, can we expect an economy where women's work is valued more than it is currently, having seen what we've seen?
0: I think we have to demand it. I don't think we can necessarily expect it, if I'm really honest with you. I think um, you know, we're gonna we're heading for a, a major recession, a global recession, right? So there's gonna be far less money around. That the narrative will be. You know, the Treasury coffers are empty. We've spent all the money trying to cope with the crisis. We can't, you know, much as we'd love to pay our carers more, we can't afford it. We haven't got the money there. So some people will be making that argument quite strongly. Some people within government and and outside government will be making that argument. So what's the counter to that? What's the counter argument and how do we make it and how do we make it effectively? And I think the point about valuing and um, valuing care and valuing women is absolutely central to that argument. But I would say even that isn't enough because um, you know, some people say, well, we've shown we, show we valued them because we clapped every Thursday night and we, you know, we were out there thanking them. So therefore we really do value carers. Um you have to translate that into action and you have to get others who don't necessarily buy into your vision to see that they've got a stake in it as well. So I think there is a broader alliance between, as I said before, business, you know, progressive organizations and 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 progressive voices um who, who have to come together and say no this is this is the kind of level we want to work at this is the standard we expect to apply and we want a different future we want a different way forward we don't want to go back to precarious workers and precarious lives and you know normalizing low pay and job insecurity we we want a social security system that is actually a safety net for everyone because more people have tried it out and actually discovered it doesn't really work that effectively and you know, we, let's let's try and move differently then and, and create one that does. And, you know, we've we want to actually have yeah the, a decent standard of living with a real living wage, not just a, a minimum wage that is a bit of an apology for a living wage. So let's let's try and get to a place where we get to that much more quickly. Um, So I think there are there are a number of um things that are really going to be central to how we go forward. But the key thing is absolutely getting the diversity of voices behind that. Um, and valuing women absolutely is central to what we're going to be saying you know we've got 50 years of the equal pay act in may so value women value carers is going to be absolutely central to the messaging that we're going to be using because we know that you you know fundamental to pay inequality is the fact that we don't value women's work so you know it's not and it's not equal pay isn't something you get when you can afford it it's actually it's, it's the lack of equal pay that's playing out now that we're seeing in our society now in terms of those women and how they're, they're so poorly served and poorly paid um, but I think we, we're going to have a real fight in our hands because there's going to be lots of other people making a very different argument and the economic circumstances are going to be very very difficult probably the most difficult we've seen in our lifetimes so how do we win um, and we've got to I think work very very hard to win and not expect that somehow because we've all been cared for and we've all been out clapping for carers that that's going to convert into them getting a decent wage and decent standard of living it doesn't you know it, it means we have to fight
1: to make the argument i'm i'm glad to think that the faucet society will be leading that fight at any rate well we'll certainly be amongst the leading organizations let there are many
0: others who are you know people at like tuc and other trade unions as well to so give them their credit and actually you know getting the cbi to talk about inequality which caroline Fairbairn did this week and a, i noticed in a comment piece for the ft that's helpful we, we need those voices as well so you know that's what we need a bit of a consensus around we can't go back to business as usual we've got to build back better which is the slogan everyone's using well let's let's define what that means then and set some basic uh, framework for that so we we know what we're all aiming for
1: and speaking of consensus do you just want to tell us a little bit about your plans for future webinars with other organizations things that, that people can listen into
0: Yeah, we've got a number coming up. We haven't put them all out on the website yet because we're busy trying to organise them. But as soon as they're um, available, we'll we'll put them up and promote them. Um, We're doing one in May on the impact on black, Asian, minority, ethnic women and workers um so that's going to be coming up shortly we're going to be doing one on uh, violence against women and girls um looking at domestic abuse but also the increase in online abuse which i think is important in in this context we're all busy staring at our screens but lots of people are using that as an opportunity to harass and abuse women um and we're going to be looking at 50 years of the equal pay act and what does that mean in the context of coronavirus so that is all about valuing women valuing care um, and then there are others too, but I can't quite remember what they are. So there you go. That's my top three off top of my head.
1: <laughs> and how can people support or get involved with the forces society during this time? Well, we're a membership organisation, so you can become a member. Um, we start have a membership
0: rate that starts from just a pound a month so you can uh, get involved in force it you can make a donation on our donations page to support our campaigns including the coronavirus campaign that we're running now um or you can just sign up to our newsletter and to our coronavirus events for free you know we're not charging for any of that so if you can't afford to spare any money right now and we understand for many people that's difficult just get involved by signing up and being a part of the campaign that
1: we're trying to build Sam Smethers thank you very much thank you